0: Hello and welcome to Battlecast, I'm Dr. Luke Wolfe and tonight we're going back to Scotland, back to the front line. Where Robert the Bruce descended from the highest ranks of Norman nobility, with thousands of acres of land and servants, access to women, that same Robert is going to roll the dice and gamble it all, facing down the gathered strength of old England, trading wine and women, a comfortable chair by the fire, for the bitter cold of water-drenched journeys, bloodshed and pain. It's the story of a puzzle called the United Kingdom. I'm going to tell you about the time the corner piece fell off. I'm going to tell you the story of Robert the Bruce. But before we can do that, I've got to thank Evan from Galveston, Texas, for buying us around. And if you want to buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit the make a donation button. But now, the battle for Scotland. Alright, so today's episode is part two of a two-part series, so if you haven't listened to last month's episode on William Wallace, you probably should, but if you want to jump right into the middle of the story, here it is. And if you remember from last month, King Alexander III of Scotland died, and this led to a convoluted conflict over the rightful heir to the throne. Into this conflict stepped the warlike king of England, Edward I, and he made bloody war on the Scots, devastating war replete with massacres and mass murder. And in 1296, John Balliol, king of Scotland, was captured as a prisoner, but the war continued. William Wallace led the fight against the English until 1305 when he was finally captured, publicly tortured, and killed, which we recounted in last month's episode. In 1302, Robert the Bruce defected to England. By 1304, Scottish support for the ongoing war was dissipating. Support for continued resistance was especially poor in southern Scotland, where vast armies and ragtag groups of marauders had ranged for almost a decade, burning and destroying property that had taken generations to build. It was gone as quick as you can say abracadabra fortunes were lost families were lost the brave had all been killed or driven into the forest the survivors wanted peace the old French Scottish alliance was broken the ongoing struggle seemed hopeless still the bloodshed continued not all at once but sporadically the way a thunderstorm threatens rain but only sends a few bursts of water that's precisely how this war was fought constantly threatening but raining blood sporadically but when it did rain, the heavens opened up and the blood flowed like an Evil Dead movie. Now in his early 30s, Bruce was probably planning to make his claim to the Scottish throne when Edward I finally died. In 1306, a year after Wallace was hanged, Robert the Bruce took up Scotland's banner and crowned himself King of Scotland. Robert's quest for the throne started with a murder. On February 10th, 1306, Robert attended a meeting with his only true competitor for the Scottish throne, John the Red Comyn. It was supposed to be a meeting where the two would-be kings negotiated a truce for the good of their country, but Bruce had other plans. In the innermost chamber of a Franciscan church, Robert the Bruce murdered his competitor, bathed John the Red Comyn in his own red blood. The story goes that Robert attempted to kill Comyn himself, But because of the adrenaline rush, Bruce had left the church without finishing the job. Sir Roger Day Kirkpatrick ran into the church and delivered the final blow, turning the quiet chamber of the Franciscan monks into an altar of blood. Kamin weakly tried to crawl away as Kirkpatrick came upon him. He couldn't talk, but he gave out animal-like groans of fright. But Kirkpatrick had no mercy. His great sword hammered into Kameen, and he gave up the ghost, terrified with wide, terror-filled eyes. He saw death come, and then he saw nothing ever again. The long blackness, a horrible way to greet the deep sleep. That very morning, Bruce pushed the button and unleashed his men on his enemies. Some he sent south to take the Kameen family castles. These fell easily. A modern historian says what happened next. Quote, On March 25th, 1306, Robert the Bruce was inaugurated as King of Scots at Scone. It was a simple ceremony. There was no stone of destiny on which to be enthroned. That had been removed by Edward I as part of his subjugation of Scotland in 1298. There were no royal robes or scepter, no royal sword, and no bishops. The hurried coronation at Scone was the signal for the outbreak of civil war in Scotland. Bruce did not enjoy much support. He did not represent the community of the realm in Scotland, the parliament that ruled Scotland, and above all, the rightful king, John Balliol, was still alive, albeit in exile in France. Almost immediately after Bruce's inauguration, the Camines, the most powerful family in Scotland, started to gather their strength. Edward I appointed the Red Comyn's brother-in-law as his special lieutenant in Scotland, with wide-ranging powers against Bruce. He was commanded to burn and slay and raise the dragon, which meant unfurling the dragon standard, which proclaimed that the normal conventions of war were in obeisance. Captured knights would be treated as outlaws and executed. In addition, King Edward persuaded Pope Clement V to authorize the excommunication of the new king of Scots, Robert the Bruce. This was pronounced by the Archbishop of Canterbury on June 5, 1306. Bruce moved quickly to consolidate his power base in the southwest of Scotland. From there, he moved north to Aberdeen to raise support, traditionally the chief power base of the Camines. He had some initial successes taking the town of Dundee, but soon he came under formidable military pressure. An English army recaptured the city of Perth. Bruce moved south to meet the English threat. He had no siege engines with which to invest the city, so instead he issued a challenge to the English commander to come out and fight or else surrender. The English accepted the challenge. to do battle the following day while his Camine allies were treacherously planning a surprise attack on the Scots camp that very night. Bruce drew off his forces and camped six miles away in the woods nearby. Suspecting no treachery, they laid aside their weapons and set no watch. At dusk, their enemies fell upon them, determined to take Bruce dead or alive, and after a savage battle, the Scots were routed, and many of Bruce's lieutenants were taken prisoner. Bruce himself escaped with some of his light cavalry and took refuge in the woods. He had been king for only four months, but now he was a fugitive, end quote. And I should point out here, you should always assume your enemy is going to go behind your back. If you're dating a girl, you should always assume somebody's going to try to get her behind your back. Even if they're nice to your face, you know the truth is going to come out in the end. They always said all is fair in love and war. That old saying is true, and we saw a case of that truth tonight. Meanwhile, King Edward I became a second angel of death, sending assassination squads throughout Britain, massacring any of Bruce's relatives he could find. Robert's brother, Neil, was hanged, drawn and quartered at Berwick. That means he was cut apart. His loyal lieutenants, the Earl of Athole and Simon Fraser were taken to London for execution. Athole was hanged on especially high gallows before being decapitated and burned, while Fraser had his head impaled on a spike beside that of William Wallace. Bruce's sister Mary was suspended in a cage from the battlements of a castle where she too was to remain for four long years, hanging in a cage. Bruce's daughter, Marjorie, was sent to a Yorkshire nunnery, and another of his sisters, Christian, who was married to Christopher Seton, was sent to a nunnery in Lincolnshire. Christopher himself was hanged, drawn, and quartered. And when I say quartered, yet again, they are being cut apart into quarters. Human butchery. And his brother, John, was put to death in the same barbaric manner at Newcastle. Robert Bruce's position was now desperate. In late July, he was ambushed in a narrow defile just south of Tindrum by John MacDougall of Argyll, son-in-law of the murdered Kameen. He suffered heavy casualties, and Bruce only escaped with his life after a heroic rearguard action. But Robert was undeterred. He brought the war to his enemies, and in spring of 1307, Robert struck again, this time leading a guerrilla force against his foes. From the start, things went horrible. His first objective was to try to regain control of southwest Scotland. He mounted a seaborne expedition from Ireland, splitting his forces in two. One division, led by two of his brothers, headed for Galloway in 18 galleys. But no sooner had they landed, but they were met... By a local force and defeated, Bruce's brothers were captured and dragged off to Carlisle where they were hanged and beheaded. Meanwhile, Bruce himself landed on the Arsher coast. He found the countryside decimated by the English occupation and was forced to retreat back into the wilds far away from any center of authority or population or anything for that matter. When I read about this, I was reminded of Bruce Campbell's line from Army of Darkness. I got news for you, pal. You ain't leading but two things right now. Jack and shit, and Jack left town. Robert the Bruce's position was now worse than it had been the previous fall. Once again, he was a fugitive king, a king whom no one wanted, and his kingdom seemed more out of reach than ever. He was a king of nothing. That's when the English began to hunt him. Two thousand Englishmen hounded Bruce and his ragtag band until they were finally cornered in the mountainous landscape of Glen Truel. The English finally had Bruce cornered, but Bruce was a fox. He had guided his enemies to this very spot on purpose. He knew they were in the area, and his men prepared a perfect ambush for the Englishmen on a narrow path abutting a lake. There were few casualties in the resulting battle, but the Englishmen were defeated, and Bruce did get away. And the mere fact that Bruce continued to evade and fight the English slowly began to foster support among the Scottish people. Everybody loves a winner, or at least somebody who doesn't give up the fight. On May 10th, 1307, the English commander, Pembroke, called out Bruce. He boldly challenged Bruce to face him in open combat. On ground, Bruce chose, and Robert the Bruce accepted. He came out of hiding to face the English on a hill called Loudon Hill. Magnus Magnuson explains what happened next. Quote, In front of his lines, Robert dug three lines of trenches lined with sharpened stakes, expertly camouflaged, to await the onslaught of the English knights. The English brought about 3,000 men to the field. Bruce's army of fugitives numbered only 600. The English knights came thundering across the level ground, smiling as they rode. The well-armed men would make short work of the ill-trained foot soldiers facing them, and then suddenly... Chaos. The galloping ranks of horsemen went crashing down into the trenches, helpless against the Scottish spearmen who stuck the flaying horsemen just as easily as a fisherman runs his hook through a worm. The worm flays, the worm lashes, but the worm is hooked, and then he goes under thrust into the cold blackness. Such was the way the English greeted death that day. The English rearguard saw what happened and promptly took flight, and Bruce had gained another victory. His reputation was growing. It would be misleading to speak of Loudon Hill or any other single engagement as a specific quote-unquote turning point in Bruce's fortunes, but it is clear that the tide was beginning to turn. In the firesides, in the drinking halls, there was a name on the lips of every Scotsman, a name that spread like rumors in Washington, D.C. The name was Robert the Bruce. A few months later, an English official serving in Scotland and hunting for Robert the Bruce sent a report to England, and this is what it said, quote, I hear that Bruce never had the good will of his own followers or the people generally so much with him as now. It appears that God himself is with him, for he has destroyed King Edward's power both among English and Scots. The people believe that Bruce will carry all before him, end quote, and this from your enemy. Now King Edward was more determined than ever to crush the Scots once and for all, yet again for the millionth damn time captured Scottish rebels were summarily executed, whatever their rank. Despite unrest at home, where the cost of his Scottish campaigns escalated every year, Edward sent yet another army into Scotland led by his son Edward, Earl of Carnarvon. English rule in Scotland had become a reign of terror. What more could King Edward do? In the summer of 1306, Edward himself started moving north. He would crush Scottish resistance once again, But Edward was deceived. There would be no invasion of Scotland. Simon Jenkins explains why, On the journey north, the 68-year-old Edward fell ill. He demanded to be raised from his litter and placed on his horse to lead his army onwards anyway. But he died soon after, on July 7, 1307. He was later eulogized as a great and terrible king, a conqueror of lands, and a flower of chivalry. On his grimly unadorned tomb in Westminster Abbey is carved Edwardus Primus Scatorum Malleus Hic Est. Edward I, Hammer of the Scots, lies here. But the hammering had left no peace. Only Scottish lands ground into sullen rebellion. The new king, the 23-year-old Edward II, was so utterly unlike his warrior father that some questioned the young man's paternity. At the time of his ascension, he was in the process of marrying Isabella the 12-year-old daughter of the king of France. The new queen was confronted by Edward's scandalous behavior with his close friend, Pierre Gaveston, who was banished by Edward I, but who was now recalled upon the king's death, of course. Isabella's family were so appalled at the two men's antics during the wedding banquet, which Gaveston attended in imperial purple trimmed with pearls, that they walked out of the wedding. Rumors circulated that the two were in a homosexual relationship, but we simply don't know if that's true or not. What we do know is that Edward II was infatuated with Gaveston, end quote. Now, this isn't the England of Edward I, Edward the brutal warrior who sent assassination squads riding through the cities of England and Scotland into hell itself if he needed to to take over a land, who burned down and massacred the inhabitants of towns who resisted him. But Edward I had needed money and lots of it to make his massacres. And to meet this need, he began to convene a council of nobles. But of course, the council was rightfully fearful of what Edward I would do to them if they got in the way of his plans. However, when Edward I died and the prancing party boy Edward II took over, the council was filled with disgust at the new king. I'm reminded of the drunken antics of Boris Yeltsin. Everyone laughed at him, even though he commanded the same country as Vladimir Putin. But no one laughs at Putin. He's a serious threat to the entire world order, according to some commentators. The only thing Yeltsin was a threat to was the Mr. Boston's vodka. This is the difference personality makes in the fate of nations. Everything is not systems in theory. Systems in theory are part of history. Do not mistake me. But they are not everything. When Napoleon moved towards Russia, the world trembled. When Putin invaded Crimea, the world stopped slapping each other's backs and giving each other medals. Personality matters. And in 1308, the English Council of Nobles declared its loyalty to, quote-unquote, the crown, rather than to the person of Edward II. Then they banished Gaveston. Now here was something Edward II couldn't stand, the banishment of his lover and or friend, showing his total lack of ability to rule. A king shouldn't care about one man. A ruler should rule in the best interests of all his people, even if it means not enjoying the delights of a lover or the ministrations of a jester. Men were dying for Edward in Scotland, sleeping in wet fields, getting sick from the cold, getting their throats slit by Scottish guerrillas. And Edward is worried he might not be able to hang out with his best buddy, Rue. Screw your best buddy. A good ruler is like a good husband. He considers his duty and the needs of his people. He puts their interests and needs over his own, especially the trivial, foolish pleasures of a mistress. But not Edward II. He was a man born to lose a kingdom, the kind of guy people joke about, openly laugh at, unafraid of even being heard by him. No one ever laughed at Edward I. They preferred keeping their heads attached to their necks. But the halls of Edward Second were filled with laughter and jokes, lust and fun, while men miles away shivered in the biting wind and worry lines etched across their faces, their harried eyes peering into the opaque blackness for any sign of the Scottish rebels. And Edward II laughed while running his fingers over the delightfully soft silk of his new personally designed wardrobe. Wait until everyone sees him at the party in his new outfit. Such is the way kingdoms are broken apart. The work of generations pissed away against the wall. And what about you, listener? Do your halls resound with jokes at your expense? Is the work of your decades pissed away against the wall? Be a good ruler, friend. Guard your money no one else will. Guard your family, no one else will. Guard your honor, no one else will. Anyway, Edward I was dead, but his army wasn't, and Edward II duly led it northward into Scotland, where he received the submission of a large number of Scottish nobles. The new English king sent 800 men with dogs to track and kill Robert, and then Edward went back to the playground formerly known as the Kingdom of England. It was then after Edward and his large army had left, that Robert struck, following the maxim of Sun Tzu, strike when your enemy is weak, avoid him when he is strong. A modern historian recounts the 1307 campaign this way, quote, As soon as the English army had left, Bruce descended on Galloway in furious retaliation against his enemies to avenge the deaths of his brothers. Then, leaving his brother Edward in Galloway to extort protection money from the renegade Scottish nobles and keep the English occupied, he struck north into Argyll and the western highlands. His priority was to eliminate his enemies in the north, gather strength, and then march south to meet the English threat on the southern flank. Bruce's surge into the lands of the MacDougals of Lorne set off all the right alarm signals, and John MacDougal asked for and received a truce. With his rear secure, Bruce's first target was Inverlochy Castle, three kilometers northeast of Fort William, guarding the southern end of the Great Glen, a long, narrow valley. With the limited forces at his disposal, Bruce could have no hope of taking the castle by siege or by storm. Instead, it fell to him through the treachery of the garrison itself. This was to be the pattern of the Winter Campaign which followed. Bruce had no standing army. He relied on a core group of seasoned fighters and gathered reinforcements and adherents locally for specific tasks. It was now November 1307 Bruce swept onwards up the Great glen. a castle on the famous Loch Ness Lake one of the strongest castles in the north was taken and destroyed Iverness Castle was surrendered and Bruce had it dismantled to ensure that it could never be retaken and used against him now I love this he doesn't have a standing army to occupy all the castles he's capturing so he deconstructs them so they can never be used against him in the future here's a real political actor Narn Castle was also taken and raised to the ground, and the Earl of Ross, a key English ally in the north, was frightened into a six-month truce with Robert. Elgin Castle was forced to negotiate a truce, and at that point, Bruce fell seriously ill, so ill that he could neither eat nor drink, and his men feared for his life itself. The momentum of the campaign was now lost, and Bruce and his men withdrew to a defensive position in a wooded bog south of Huntley. At that point, on Christmas Day, John Kameen arrived with a strong force. For some reason, Kameen's troops were unwilling to do battle, we don't know why, and Commine withdrew to muster reinforcements. When he returned a week later, Bruce had turned to mist, evaporated, gone. That was the turning point. Bruce, not yet fully recovered, destroyed John Commine's castle at Dufftown in March, then Duffus Castle near Elgin, then Terradale Castle on the Black Isle. The final battle of the campaign came on May 22nd, 1308. The Comyn had assembled a large army at Inveri. Bruce, although he still had to be carried on a litter, determined to meet the threat head-on. Somewhere on the road between Inveri and Old Meldrum, the two armies met. Bruce was helped into his saddle where he needed two men to hold him upright, but the mere sight of him on his charger had an electrifying effect on the Scottish army. Camille's men took fright and fled when they saw him. John Camille himself was tugged on his strings back south to England to seek support there from his puppet master. And now... With the earldom undefended, Bruce laid waste to the John Kameen's lands from end to bloody end. All Kameen's supporters were put to the sword. Every village was burned. It would be fifty years before the district of Buchan, recovered from the terrible harrying carried out by Bruce in the bleak spring of 1308. The town of Aberdeen was next to fall in July. The only major force left intact in the north was that of John MacDougall of Lorne in his castle, who had made a truce with Bruce the previous summer. It was now the third week of August. The truce was over, and Macdougall decided to try to stop Bruce before he could reach his castle. The mountain pass of Brander allows only a narrow track along the lake below the steep side of Ben Crocken, one of the highest mountains in Scotland. This was where John of Lorne decided to lay an ambush. He hid his forces high on the mountainside. John of Lorne himself, still not recovered from his long illness, waited in a galley on the lake to watch the massacre of Robert the Bruce. But Bruce was not to be caught by a MacDougall ambush a second time. He sent James Douglas ahead with a detachment of archers to take up a position even higher up the mountainside than MacDougall's men. So they actually went higher on the high ground, which I thought was just beautiful when i read it as the MacDougals began their assault on the main body of bruce's army they were caught by a storm of arrows from behind after fierce hand-to-hand fighting john of lorne's men fled the field john got away to the south but his castle was surrendered after a short siege the power of the MacDougals was broken now bruce began to show his shrewdness as a long-term strategist he did not dismantle the castle he had just taken as he had all the other castles in the north, he needed it to maintain his control of the area. He himself returned to the northeast to deal with the last of the Commune supporters there, the Earl of Ross, who had captured his family at Tain and handed them over to the English, but instead of wrecking merciless vengeance, Bruce accepted Ross's submission at Narn on october thirty first, thirteen oh eight and he received him into the king's grace. The agreement was later sealed by the marriage of Ross's heir, the Hugh of Ross, to the third of Bruce's younger sisters, Matilda. For Robert Bruce, it had been a remarkable year. He had picked off his domestic enemies one by one. Apart from the key fortresses of Dundee, Perth, and Stirling, he now controlled the majority of Scotland and could justifiably claim to be the king of Scots by right of conquest. Over the next three years, Edward II tried to raise armies to storm Scotland and remove Bruce each time the armies failed and each time Edward returned south with his tail between his legs. In 1311, Robert the Bruce turned the tables. He began raiding northern England, demanding protection money from local English rulers. Perth fell in January 1313 after Bruce and his father swam across the moat in darkness and used specially made rope ladders to scale the walls in silence. And then, in September 1313, Linlithgow was captured by using a hay cart as a Trojan horse. He concealed eight Scottish commandos who held the gate until the main force arrived to tackle the garrison inside. Meanwhile, Edward the Second sought to hearten his supporters in Scotland by declaring that he would bring an army to Scotland in the summer of 1314. This only emboldened Bruce to capture as many English forts and towns as he could in Scotland before the hammer blow fell. And in March 1314, the greatest prize of all fell into Bruce's hands, Edinburgh Castle. Once again, it was achieved by stealth, not by storm. Bruce's nephew, Sir Thomas Randolph, was told by a local man of a secret route up the precipitous north face of the crag and while the main body of the attackers created a diversion by assaulting the east gate randolph climbed the north crag with 30 hand-picked men and then used rope ladders to get over the walls and open the gates the scotsmen rushed through the gates the way water spews from fire hydrants the entire english garrison was massacred and the castle walls were thrown down there was no pity Only one key castle now remained in English hands, Stirling. It was considered impregnable. Bruce established a blockade and left the siege to his impetuous younger brother, Edward. Edward was known to prefer the excitement of the battlefield to the grinding monotony of a long siege, and when the English constable of Stirling Castle offered a deal, Edward accepted it without hesitating. The agreement was that if an English army had not arrived to relieve Stirling by Midsummer's Day, June 24th, The English would surrender the castle, which would make a siege unnecessary. When Robert the Bruce heard of the bargain his brother had made, he shook with anger. It had taken Robert a decade and his family a century to establish the Bruce family claim to the Scottish throne, and now Edward had done all that work in with one foolish agreement. Bruce's entire strategy had been to frustrate the English by not fighting them in a conventional pitched battle. He knew that Scotland's forces could not match the armored might which England could muster. Edward the Bruce had now undone all that. The time and the place for a battle had been pledged. The die was cast for the confrontation which would decide the future of Scotland. By June 10, 1314, Edward had amassed a massive force of about 15,000 men. The exact figures are unknown. Of these, about 2,000 were horsemen and there was also an unknown number of archers. Against this, Robert scraped the bottom of his war-torn country's barrel to form the largest army he would ever lead into battle, 6,000 men strong. Most of his men were spearmen. Once again, the fate of Scotland would hinge on the Scottish Skiltron, steel-helmeted men wielding spears more than nine feet long. Men who joined the army late were set aside as a reserve, which came to be known as the Small Folk. These were farmers, laborers, and craftsmen, equipped only with homemade weapons. They numbered perhaps 3,000 in all by the time of the battle. On June 17, 1314, the English host left Berwick and headed for Edinburgh. It made a brave sight, glittering and shimmering as the sun shone on kilometer upon kilometer of burnished armor and embroidered banners. Behind it came a huge wagon train consisting of a 110 wagons drawn by teams of eight oxen and 106 wagons drawn by teams of four horses. With only a week to go before the deadline of midsummer day, there was no time to be lost. On Wednesday, June 19th, the Vanguard reached Edinburgh where it paused for two days to take on fresh provisions. Early on the morning of Saturday, June 22nd, the army moved off again, making a forced march of 32 kilometers to Falkirk, still 22 kilometers short of Stirling Castle. The next morning, they pushed on, and on the afternoon of Sunday, June 23rd, the forward units emerged from the forest. The English army was on the old Roman road near Falkirk, that's when the English vanguard saw the Scotsmen forming up. The English attacked as one man, without hesitation, without waiting, quick as you could flip on a light switch. That's when one of the charging English knights named Henry spotted Robert directing his spearmen. He broke away from his compatriots and drove towards the king. He would be the one to bring Robert down. You should have seen Henry that day, every inch a man. His forearm snaking with veins across his muscles. His bicep rounded like a taut breast of a young lady. His armor gleaming in the morning sun. The clap of his horse's hooves Signaled a train chugging death and he was screaming like a death metal singer animal noises to spur on his beast death was upon robert but robert was quick as a deep breath from an oxygen starved swimmer bruce armed with a hand axe waited until henry was upon him and then sidestepped the charge on his much smaller mount and as henry thundered past he stood up in his stirrups and split Henry's skull with a single blow of his axe. The head burst apart like gore in 1980s anime. And as Henry fell dead, the Scottish ranks surged forward, a wall of bristling steel-tipped pain to meet the cavalry attack. The larger English horses were carefully maneuvering the booby traps Bruce had placed on the battlefield earlier, slowing the cavalry advance, breaking it apart, weakening it. Then the spearmen were upon the English horsemen, their knife tips scraping rainbows of blood from the horse riders. The English withdrew, Bruce called off any pursuit, and the disciplined Skiltrons withdrew back up the hill to await the next round of fighting. At this time, another group of 500 English cavalry set out to flank the Scotsmen. They had nearly infiltrated behind the Scottish line when a group of spearmen broke off to block the advance of the English horses, and the horsemen came to meet them. Picture the Scottish skiltron in your mind. The spears are long and wide. And when the men formed the battle line, it really resembles a steel-tipped forest, thick branches of death. If the line held, no horse could break it. The English tore into the death branches of the Scotsmen anyway. Again and again and again, the English horse charged the forest of iron, but the spear wall held and many fine well-bred horses were disemboweled that day. You could hear the thwack of horse flesh on spear. Sometimes the weight of a horse would snap a spear shaft and you could hear the loud cracking the way you hear branches break under the weight of snow in winter. But this was different because it was intermixed with horses and men dying and screaming at one another. The English charged the Scottish line near Falkirk, but they ended up in the next life. Many of the men who died didn't even feel the pain, adrenaline and shock blessedly blacked out their nerve receptors, and the Scots held the field and successfully chose the ground. The preview was over. The next day, June 24, 1314, they would see the main feature, and the fate of Scotland would be decided. Robert the Bruce addressed his men at dawn, in full battle array. For eight years or more, I have struggled with much labor for my right to the kingdom and for honorable liberty. I have lost brothers, friends, and kinsmen. Your own kinsmen have been made captive, and bishops and priests are locked in prison. Our country's nobility has poured forth its blood in bloody war. These barons you see before you, clad in armor, are bent upon destroying us. They do not believe that we can resist. After that short speech, Robert ordered his spearmen to attack the English at the bottom of the hill. The English countered with volleys of iron-tipped arrows, but they achieved little. Now that the groupings of Scottish spearmen were moving, they made difficult targets. Edward had hoped to thin out the ranks of the Scotsmen with his archers, but soon the Scottish Skiltrons would be in his lap. The archers were recalled and the English cavalry once more charged to the Scottish Death Hedge of Spears. They charged into their own graves. The Scottish Death Force held firm. The English horsemen were impaled like corn dogs, but they had achieved one thing. They had pinned down the Scottish spearmen. Now the English archers could work death into the stationary targets. The archers laid down a blanket of arrows. They sprinkled death in pain among the spearmen. Still, the Skiltrons held firm. English arrows were catching English horsemen and Scottish infantry alike. One novelist paints a picture of the archer attack like this, quote, And then there was the unsung tragedies. An English knight named Peter who was wounded in some of the earliest fighting, gasped for breath as the battle raged around him. He sees his fellow wounded trampled by body-crushing horse hooves. He attempts to drag himself to safety, but he doesn't get far. He has no water. Thirst turns his mouth into cotton candy. Then an arrow splashes into the dirt next to his face. His eyes go wide. Adrenaline paints across his bowels. Then the deluge comes. Peter's heart pounds on the walls of his chest as the arrows stab around him. Then he feels it. An arrow splintering his leg just above the knee. The steel tip Fingering his insides His brain lit up like a pinball machine With pain signals Then another arrow knives into his gut Opening his bowels Sending the bile sewering into his body cavity Still the man lives Choking on air Blood in his mouth Eyes wild One arm flailing the ground The other cradling his spilling Sausage-like bowels Then another arrow hammers into his shoulder And Peter is pincushioned against the earth His heart is lulling His breath is shallow the blood is seeping out of him and then he dies as the battle rages around him peter was later buried in a mass grave he has no stone to mark his death and there are thousands of peters that day and thousands of unmarked graves look out your window how many are buried out there and no one knows it the marrow death beneath the veneer of your civilization End quote now bruce was no fool He had planned for the English archers and consequently he unleashed his cavalry, 500 strong into their ranks. A hurricane makes land and splinters the million dollar homes on the beach the way children destroy sandcastles, just utter destruction. Such was the way the Scottish horse tore into the English archers. It was a massacre. The Scotsmen axed their heads apart. Some men were decapitated, others were hacked literally into pieces. Most were trampled under a thousand horse hooves, such as the way scotland gained her freedom magnus magnuson picks up the story quote with the formidable english archers scattered bruce committed his own hand-picked brigade of elite veterans they threw themselves forward in a great highland charge the shuddering impact of their impetus turned the tide and the english ranks began to waver the scottish skiltrons moved forward remorselessly foot by foot a terrible an irresistible engine of destruction. The English realized now they were losing, and at that moment came another totally unexpected twist. Behind the Scottish Skiltrons, the untrained, untested militia called Small Folk, hidden behind a hill, suddenly appeared unbidden and unlooked for. They streamed down the hill, brandishing their homemade weapons and screaming like banshees. To the desperate English, they looked like a second Scottish army, arriving fresh when they themselves were on the point of exhaustion. The effect was decisive. The English high command realized that all was lost and now their priority was to save King Edward himself before he was captured in the field. King Edward's departure from the field was the signal for a general English flight. The battle turned into a rout and then a massacre. The bannock burn filled with corpses, and the river Forth, meandering lazily past Turling Castle, took another toll of drowned soldiery. The rich English baggage train fell into the hands of the Scots as plunder to be shared out all over Scotland. The battle was over, the most resounding triumph in Scotland's military history, but the victory was not complete. King Edward had escaped. The Battle of Bannockburn had triumphantly confirmed Bruce's position as King of Scots in Scotland, but not in England. For the next few years, he hammered his way into northern England time and time again in an effort to force Edward II to recognize him as King of an independent Scotland. The devastation was immeasurable. In 1315, Bruce extended the area of war by invading Ireland and having his brother Edward the Bruce declared King there in 1316. Edward Bruce only lasted until 1318 in Ireland, however, when he was defeated and killed in battle. In the same year, Bruce at last managed to capture Berwick Castle after several failed attempts. Now, nowhere in the north of England was safe. Even the city of York was menaced by an invasion in 1319. It was sufficient to wring from Edward the Second a two-year truce which lasted from 1319 to 1321, which allowed Bruce the opportunity to concentrate on the diplomatic front abroad. The battle went on. On April 6, 1320, Bruce and his advisers issued a letter to the Pope calling for freedom for the Scottish people. It was called the Declaration of Arbroath and is known the world over as a clear statement on the need for freedom and self-determination. This is what the Declaration said, quote, Edward I came here as a friend to our nation, but then revealed himself as an enemy with deeds of cruelty, massacre, violence, pillage, arson, imprisoning priests, burning down monasteries, robbing and killing monks and nuns, and yet other outrages without number, which he committed against our people, sparing neither age nor sex, religion nor rank. But from these countless evils we have been set free by our most valiant prince, king and lord, the Lord Robert. He, that his people and his heritage might be delivered out of the hands of our enemies, bore cheerfully all toil and fatigue, hunger and peril, like another Maccabeus or Joshua. To him, as to him by whom salvation has been wrought unto our people, we are bound both by law and by his merits, that our freedom may still be maintained, and by him, come what may, we mean to stand. Yet, if he should give up what he has begun, and should seek to make us or our kingdom subject to the king of England or to the English, we would strive at once to drive him out as our enemy, and a subverter of his own right and ours, and we would make some other man who is able to defend us our king. For as long as but a hundred of us remain alive, we shall never on any conditions be subjected to English rule. It is in truth, not for glory, nor riches, nor honors, that we fight but for freedom alone, which no honest man gives up except with his life." Well, we can say with Pilate, qui es libertatum. What is freedom? For these Scotsmen, freedom was self-determination, the ability to rule over oneself. It's an old human desire and one I think that will never go away. We see it all over the world, in the Haitian Revolution, in the Scottish Wars, in the celebration of Kwanzaa. It's that same old song, self-determination. I've got news for you. You can turn the volume down on self-determination. You can press mute on the remote, but one day it will come back as regular and as mystical as Santa Claus himself. Even if you've Purged it from your heart, the song is already in the heart of your children and even in your seed itself. The smallest ashes burst into the largest flames. We'll hear the song again. And one of the greatest melodies in the Song of Freedom is the Declaration of Arbroes. Anyway, after the breakdown of the peace talks in 1321 and the end of the two-year truce, the Scots resumed their devastation of the north of England and its fortresses. Once again, York the capital of England's military organization in the north, came under threat. Bruce's intention was clear, to force the English to recognize his kingship. Finally, Edward II was deposed and he died in prison. Many think he was assassinated. No one really knows for sure. He was bad at riding the tiger. Edward III took the throne but was too young to govern. His two regents, Roger Mortimer and his mother, Queen Isabella, effectively ruled England. Isabella and Mortimer tried to make another campaign against the Scots, but Parliament refused them the necessary funds and they were forced to make peace, finally. And on March 17th, the negotiations ended with the formal signing of a treaty. It was ratified in England by Edward III in Parliament and Northampton on May 3rd. By the terms of this treaty, Edward renounced all claims to English sovereignty over Scotland. It recognized Bruce as King of Scots and it promised mutual friendship and goodwill. It was also agreed that the Stone of Scone would be returned. By the Treaty of Edinburgh, King Robert I of Scotland had achieved for Scotland and for himself all the objectives for which he had been striving for 22 arduous years. Scotland was free. On June 13, 1329, the architect of that freedom, Robert the Bruce, died. He was 55 years old. He was the father of a nation. He was Robert the Bruce. When Bruce died in 1329, he was buried in Dunfermline Abbey before the high altar with exceptional reverence. A marble tomb was shipped over from Paris, and his body was wrapped in a golden shroud and encased in a thin sheet of lead. The inscription on the tomb read, Here lies the invincible Robert, blessed king. Let him who reads his exploits repeat how many wars he carried on. He led the kingdom of the Scots to freedom by his uprightness. Now let him live in the citadel of heaven, End quote. And that's another one for me. I'm Dr. Luke Wolfe, and I'm thankful for you listening. I'm thankful for you writing in. I'm thankful and honored to be able to recount the deeds of William Wallace and Robert the Bruce. And this is just the beginning. Next month, we're jumping into modern war as we review the sordid history of the Mexican drug war. You won't want to miss it, and I'll be here regular as the moon itself. And if you like the show, throw me a bone and give me a five-star review wherever you're listening. And also, with this coronavirus thing going on, if I miss a month, it's because I'm sick, or somebody in my family died, or one of my kids has got malaria or something, and that's why I'm not on the air. I'm not going to quit. So if you miss me one month, some drastic thing happened in my life, like, God forbid, I got coronavirus. In the case that happens, I'll be back the next month. Or if it goes on for two months, I'll be back in three months. But I'm not stopping. So you don't have to worry about me giving up. And now, guys, once again, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, And I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Bye. Stay safe out there, guys. I know I am.